here we are. Yeah, drinking coffee, shouting out. Yeah, very nice day in your newly refurbished kitchen. 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 Yeah, we got the countertops in and making this place a thing of beauty for what it is. It's nice. I like the library here. Yep, we're next to the library of books. Ki kitchen I, library. I value a little bit more, and I'm looking up there, and I'm thinking, <coughs> I was thinking about pulling this off the shelf to ask you if you've read it. It's Christopher Cranch. Nope. It's that reddish-brown book up there. It's, uh, it's a book of, it's poetry. It's, he was a transcendentalist, uh -huh. which is where we're going to be going today. Yep. Uh, to a degree. Yep. Um, this book right here next to the Shakespeare. I found that book in a bookshop in Concord, Mass. Oh, nice, I see it. A long time ago, and I thought some of the poems in there are really amazing. He was just a poet, but he was sort of the least of the known from mm -hmm. the Concord writers, which would be Thoreau, Emerson, Alcott. Alcott was a, is buried there. Louisa May Alcott. Yep. Um, who else? But he sort of got overshadowed, and I always find those people interesting. Because you get that, get that overshadowing in all right. of these writer the the romantic movements. You had certain people who didn't hit Blake's William Blake or right. Samuel right. Coleridge stride. But he was he's good. So I like I like finding books like that. You're yeah, like oh that, he was the the forgotten brother. You know, <clears throat> and his name is Christopher Cranch. So Cranch. it's this one, Tree of Man next to Tree of Man. I wonder if that is in the Oxford. Book of American Verse. Hmm. Probably is. Yeah, I don't know. He sort of did the Walt Whitman thing. He wrote. He mm -hmm. wrote about like the Civil War and Lincoln a little bit. New York City. New York City. <laughs> I don't think so. He didn't get there. I don't think so. No. The Civil War. You know, like John Brown's body. Have you ever read that? No. Um, it's as really the Civil War epic. Mm. By Stephen uh, Benet, which is really really cool. I haven't read that. Um, I like the uh, Durant pieces that you have up here. Mm-hmm. Unread, most of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. Well, I've read volume three, and I'm I'm really close to finishing volume two. Did I ever tell you what I used to with the volume two? You're finishing. What is volume two? Life of Greece. Oh, that's probably tough. I think instead of that, I want to read uh, the history of Greece, which is uh, I have it somewhere. Burry, right here, J. B. Burry. Yeah. But and which is important to read, but those books, um, I used the town I used to live in. I worked for my parents in the liquor store that they owned, <clears throat> and there was this guy, English guy, uh, who lived across town. He used to come in and buy like three packs of cigarettes a day. He was just devouring those, like really one every three or four days. Wow! Um, and he would just come in, and he he would see me reading at yeah. the counter, just a book, whatever. And he would just he just knew I read. Uh huh. So <laughs> he'd just tell me he'd go through the book, he'd just start talking, and yeah. like an hour and a half later, I'm like, I can't remember <laughs> any of what. Sitting sitting behind the counter. And you just there. I'm like, dude, I gotta refill my coffee. It's like. He yeah. was a very smart guy, and he was a working class, like English, 
mm-hmm. English guy. Mm-hmm. He really missed his mark, I think. Mm. Really liked him, but he smoked enough cigarettes to probably oh, kill him pretty fast. <laughs> I see. But really smart. And he could have been teaching it better than any sure. any of those subjects, better than anybody who's probably teaching those subjects. Today. I've heard on multiple occasions of people who will just spend a summer knocking out all 11 volumes. Wow. The, a summer? Yes. Which that's, is very that's quick. four months, right? I mean... Yeah. Yeah. Three or four. Three? Mm-hmm. Um, I... A couple weeks ago, I sat down... No, no, no. This was last week. I told myself, I'm going to read 150 pages of it because it was a Saturday and Reagan was... Um, in Atlanta and so I'm like I'm going to read 150 pages and I read 75 and it took me the whole day I mean they're dense because you're pages and you're on marking and off. it off right you're just yes, like... and you're also writing it's funny because I I mark my books with red pen and I I pretty much destroy them yeah that ruins them and uh <laughs> resale value <laughs> yeah no I don't I don't really I never think about resale value I either give them away or I just take them to the secondhand store and it's just like, give me credit. Uh, I have a ton of credit up the road, actually. Like over <laughs> There's nothing worth buying now. I know. No, no well, they're, they're... Oh, that's a rough thing to say. <laughs> but No, there are, there are some good things. There are but some. It's, you have to really wade through what is available. Yeah. He likes good books. I yeah, think. it's but he's, just that... He's selling to a market. And that same market is bringing him back... Right. Very good things. I think his nature section's good. Well, I haven't really spent much time there. Yeah, there's a lot of... We'll probably have to... We'll probably stuff. be going into that. But that's funny to have... I have a... I, I had some credit there, but it was like $3. And I'm like, I don't yeah, even you care. you should use mine. $3? Like, Just what, use my name. What's yours, like 15 <laughs> No, I have over $200. Oh, my credit God. Card. What? Yeah, I just bring... I should drive to Asheville, is really. It, is it good? At the other shop, which I haven't checked out yet. In, I don't know, but I think that can? you could you could talk to Greg and be like, listen, huh. come around quite often. I bring in good things. Wow. Give I, me the treatment. I wanted to say too about the Dewalt, the Dewalt, <laughs> the power tools. Section. Dewalt, Durant, Durant, <laughs> Dewalt. What can we build today? Uh, last thing I was re- reading Durant was England. Something I don't know. I I'm not good with the dates and, but I what I'll do is I'll get into it and I'll be re- oh it was the age of Voltaire I, I believe mm-hmm. and it goes off into talking about. Somehow the age of Voltaire covers things like uh, Pope Alexander Pope. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. I can't. Be, I, anyway, um, and then you get in and you come across Pope and you, you start reading about what kind of person Pope is and then you're like well I just want to read, Pope's work. Yeah. So you. You, you stop reading this book, right? Because and you, you, know, pope. you got a pope, and you read. You know, I, I ended up buying a volume. I didn't dive into it, but I, I read Pope a while ago. And he was funny. Yeah. He wrote. Uh, I haven't read anything by the Dunciad. What? The Dunciad. The Dunciad. I don't know what that is. Which the dunce. The and dunce. It's, and it's like making fun of people that he didn't like. He was, he was known for being. Yeah. For, for like taking shots. Yeah, he and Swift, um, and there's another guy. Even Shakespeare did it. The Flea? You know what, The Flea? No, I haven't read that. The poem about, like... 
I've pro actually I've probably read it because I read a collection of Shakespeare's poems, right. but none of them really stuck with me except the love sonnets. Those were but nice. the love sonnets, those are the ones he makes fun of some of the women. He's like really praising. Yeah, he's, oh. their features are very accentu accentuated and. <laughs> I mean, I remember reading that thing. This was what passed. This was stand-up. <laughs> True. I mean, it's really. It's. I was very surprised at how raunchy Shakespeare was when I first encountered him in high school, actually. And then, being in high school, I just really didn't understand what was going on. Um, but now it's even more so. I'm like, oh my gosh. This, because I, I think that, at least for me, I've always had a. A view of the before times, any times in history that they would be much more innocent, and that we're in like the worst of all possible times, you know. But Shakespeare, Chaucer, those guys were really on the nose. Oh, I wanted I gotta to say, I want to tell you in relation to Chaucer. Yeah. Bagatelle. Mm -hmm. I was there yesterday. Mm -hmm. They got... It's Folgers, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It is quite good. It's actually giving me, bringing me back to certain memories of oh, my childhood. It's, it's the good fold. It's the high... The high-end fold. The high-end This is top-shelf folders. Top folders. They don't just sell this. You have to ask for yeah. the key mm -hmm. and the angles. <laughs> no, um, Bagatelle got a ton of Everyman uh, modern library books in. Ah, like in the last week. Okay. Uh, you might want to check that out. Yeah, I'll make a drive. There's, they probably got like 50 of them. And they're all, they all have all their dust jackets and everything. They're, mm. they go, he sells them for about 10 a pop, which is Asheville pricing, but they're nice. You're going to go buy them all. No, <laughs> I mean, I have so many. There wasn't really anything I wanted, but, mm. but there might be something you want in there. But there mm. was a Chaucer. Canterbury Tales was in there. Yeah. Um, and that's... Nah, yeah. it's not the time for Canterbury Tales no, right now. No, it's not. The time is for Edward Abbey. Edward Abbey. <laughs> the reason we are here today. I'm Edward Abbey. <clears throat> and, uh... Does he talk like that, you think? Well, he did have a kind of wolf thing in the, in the author's introduction. Maybe I'll read a couple quotes throughout <clears throat> All right. our, our chat. Here, I'll start with this one. I'm reading now. Quote, but the desert is a vast world, an oceanic world, as deep in its way and complex and various as the sea. Language makes a mighty loose net with which to go fishing for simple facts, when facts are infinite. If a man knew enough, he could write a whole book about the juniper tree. Not juniper trees in general, but that one particular juniper tree which grows from a ledge of naked sandstone near the old entrance to Arches National Monument, end quote. Mm. That reminded me of our short section last week when we were talking about Wolf and how he's so florid in his writing. He could take any single element in a room and just go off on it for pages. Yeah. Well, Abby had that. Abby was a wolf head. He Bef was. Before. Yeah, he's recommending. Actually, he has a... I probably can't find it, but... You don't... No, no, no. It was in 
It was in the book of essays that you lent me, One Life at a Time. Oh, really? In the oh, writer's yeah, yeah, credo, yeah, yeah. he has that paragraph yes. where he recommends he just Dreiser, did. who I've seen, but I've never read. American Tragedy? Yeah, I bought that. That's a tough last book. Last night. I, I know, it's I, huge. I think I read 150 pages of it, and I just stopped. Certain books I, I quit on, not because they were difficult, but because they were tough in a way that... It's like it's a like, labor of love. A, yeah. But I also... One of the reasons why I've been interested in some of these books, I was a little bit interested in Thackeray. Um, some of the, they got some of them in who, some, some, who um, wrote the book that, uh, Vanity Fair. Yes. I read that and my eyes were glazed for like the whole thing. That's that was me with, uh, uh, I suffered through it. I feel that I'm always suffering through a lot of these (laughs) old 18th century, no, 19th century English. Reading is suffering. (laughs) No, it's, it. You read Candy, for pleasure, though. Do you read for pleasure? Oh, I don't read for pleasure. It doesn't give me any pleasure. No, most of the time it's it's pleasure, but the English just you the, know the English, they, right. they whip you with boredom sometimes. But the reason I'm interested in them is because of the the things that are not necessarily um, narrative. For example. The descriptions of them opening and closing doors, descriptions of eating, descriptions of greetings, um, just cultural mores, um, manners. I find that to be very, very interesting. Mannerisms. Yeah. Like I want to, how are these people acting? You know, like even when you watch old Hollywood and people are smoking cigarettes and a woman grabs a cigarette and she puts it to her lips. Immediately there's a guy there flipping open his lighter. Like, and whether or not that's true, maybe it was a Hollywoodism that they wanted to make part of the culture. But the fact that it's there gives you a contrast for the times we're in now. Norm, most people aren't going to be offering to light other people's cigarettes. <laughs> Unless you're like trying to come on to somebody. Um, or maybe you're with a friend. But it's not the norm. Most most people are going to be in a kind of do-it-yourself mode, which is... That's the American. That's, that, the, that's the American way. The American thing. And a lot of the, those manners, mannerisms and manners that you're mm. talking about that the English writers wrote about or their culture really valued still do to a degree in the upper classes probably sure was and it translated into our hollywood scenes i think with people like rhett butler yes harry grant yes a lot of those guys with the good hair yeah (laughs) uh yeah not me and the suits (laughs) (laughs) and the suits and that was uh marketing upper class culture true that was retrieved from a european my guess, retrieved from your European or recycled from the European yeah, yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it can be like a real um, middle class bourgeois thing to be wondering, oh, what it, what do the upper classes or the very rich or elite do? I also think 
take Dune, for example. Did you see Dune? No, I've seen Have red, you read it? No. I just well, know. Well, there's this interesting thing in Dune where Arrakis, this planet, is a complete desert. And the the rarest thing... So Edward Abbey was there. <coughs> you know, it's actually, it's, it's quite appropriate <laughs> to mention Dune uh, and Arrakis with Desert Solitaire of Edward Abbey. Um, because he has a chapter called Water, where he's just talking about all the different ways that water interacts with the desert and is found in the desert. And um, anyway, on Arrakis, in this world that Herbert, Frank Herbert, I think his name is, has created, they, the culture has become such that when they interact with anything that has to do with water, the, the manners are very different from what we would expect. Like in the movie, there's a, there's a, a tense moment between um, Paul's father, I forget his name, he's the Duke of uh, the Atreides, and this leader of the Fremen, um, we're kind of, <laughs> they're kind of like the Taliban of Dune. Um, and Dune is a kind of Afghanistan, and it belongs to them, but it also has resources, which the Empire, the Galactic Empire, uh, I think that's what they're called, they want these resources, and it's a spice, actually, that they want. So they're there kind of as an invasive uh, group. But anyway, the Duke and the leader of the Fremen have this agreement, and the Fremen guy spits at the end of the agreement. And for the, the Atreides, these foreigners, to Arrakis, this is highly insulting. And their, their way of interpreting someone spitting at another person is very in line with the way that you and I would probably interpret somebody spitting at us or in our direction on the street, and we'd be like, what the hell, you know? Mm. Um, but for the people of Arrakis, since water is so precious, for you to give some of your water oh, wow. to someone, like to be extravagant with your water is very impressive and very meaningful. Hmm. And so there are a lot of things concerning water throughout the book and also throughout the movie. Um, this really reminds me of the uh, Obama bowing incident. <laughs> <laughs> Was it insulting? <laughs> I don't know. My opinion at the time, and I think my opinion now, is still that he should not have bowed. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm just throw, I'm throwing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I. I uh, that's interesting, though. Yeah, that that. Can I segue that? Though? I'm gonna, yeah, I'm yeah, gonna do put it. it to to Abby now. Water. You're saying that that. Because it's such a precious in resource desert. in the desert. Yeah, yeah. And even before you segue, in the book actually, and maybe it'll be in the second installment of the of the movie. Mm. Um, there's a scene in the end when, I know we're always spoiling these endings, but Paul kills this guy who's trying to kill him. They have a duel, and in the book, I didn't really see this happening in the movie. But in the book, they 
have technology where they can drain his blood and take the water out of his blood. And then they're going to, you know, they're going to drink that because it's just such a precious resource. They have to purify it and etc. But at every opportunity, they're also wearing these special suits, which get upwards of 90% of their moisture and, you know, they allow them to take the moisture off the body and then to drink it. So they're very efficient. Sounds terrible. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's pretty brutal. But culturally, uh, it's very, very different. And I actually have a lot to say about Dan, but we can say that another time. <laughs> um, yeah, so go to, to go to Edward. Time. Yeah, you got to watch it. We'll have a, a Dune episode. I will, I will dive in. Yeah. Have you read it too? Yes. Okay, I'll read it at some point. I'm not, I'm not there yet, though. I got five, six books open. Yeah, so. yeah. But I was, I was reading um, essays from Beyond the Wall and One Life at a Time, Please, which you did as well. And Beyond the Wall is a little different. I don't know what you read from this, from One Life at a Time. <clears throat> I accidentally read three of the essays three. instead of just two. Did you read? <laughs> I read the anarchism one, the... The, the eco-fascist... Eco-defense? Eco-defense. Um, and then I read the writer's credo, the, which was anime? great. And I didn't I, read this one. I yet. may have written in it a little bit. Oh, this is fine. Apologies. This is just a... Be I think I've written in this. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. That's me, right? Or is that you? I don't know. I'm the black pen. <clears throat> and, oh yeah, there's some That's fine. in there. <laughs> That's fine. Um, your lines are really straight when you underline. Um, but in Beyond the Wall... It's much different. You get, in One Life at a Time, please, you get as sort of political, as political as he got. I like writers who get political like Abby did because you couldn't pin them to a party. Yeah. You couldn't, and I think that the only people who really are political at all, or even uh, revolutionary or radical at all, you can't nail them to a political party. Well, he's an actual free thinker. Right. He's really thinking for himself, which means he's not going to fall perfectly into some camp. As you shouldn't. And which I, yeah, I, I um, you endorse be, that. You shouldn't be able to tell where, really politically, where somebody stands on every issue based mm -hmm. on their, ish, their opinion on guns. I their know. opinion on abortion. Their opinion. You right. shouldn't be able to say, oh... Okay, you're pro-choice, or oh, you're pro-life, or right. that means you're this, 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 this. Right. But we can do that now, oh, with right. almost certainty. Why shouldn't we be able to do that, though? Because you should be able to digest every issue on its own. Right. Um, like I you think and I it's have... because it shows that you're not an actual thinking person. You're just a parent. That's, you're just playing. You're just a team. You're picking a team, like a right. sports team, to follow. Right. And it's funny I say that, but I used to watch, I used to be a big Bruins fan, hockey fan, and oh, nice. I would watch the Bruins, and I, we had some dirty players on our team. And when they would do something that was really... Uh, Reprehensible. Yeah, it's just really, yeah. Yeah. I would, dirty. I would not be Playing okay dirty. with that. I don't want, the integrity of the sport was at play, so I'd right. be like, oh, you know, that's, that's wrong. But I remember watching it with some, you know, my friends or my dad, and they'd be like, okay, she's on our team, you know, it's like... Yeah, 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 but, yeah. but it's wrong. You're not standing right. by what's right. But, but Abby was able to to stand by what he believed, much to the dismay of like the modern 
po political commentators who have tried to post, you know, I don't know, it's 30 years after his death, tried to cancel him now. Are they really? Well, they've, they've tried to come at him with, you know, because of his opinions on immigration or right. women or whatever. Right. I don't even know what the misogyny is. I don't know what he's talking about. I didn't even get to that essay. People, I, I did see an essay on women. It was probably like, I don't know if I've read it. Maybe that's just my ignorance. I don't know. I haven't read it. Um, but but to go to what you're talking about in Dune, in, the, in this book, he, it's, it's much different because he, he writes about just walking in the desert, probably a lot like yeah. Desert Solitaire. And the whole journey, I mean, he walks this, like, 150-mile thing through the desert. He mentions that briefly here, where he says he took only a small water bottle. Took and, a small water bottle? Yeah. And he's like, I think there's water up there, but if I die, at least I'm going to feed the vultures, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's <laughs> so funny. He just had a humor in his, you know, humor. Right. He says I'm, something like, I'm going to transcend... <laughs> Myself, yeah. and I'll be flying in the sky. And when he did die, that's what they did. They, his friends, threw his body in some spot with a stone that said, uh, "It was like Bukowski stone. Like, don't try on Bukowski's." It was like, uh, what does it? What does it say? On the no comment. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. It's supremely irreverent, though, and I get it that that was his style. Actually, there was this line, that apparent, another paragraph in here somewhere. Ah, um, uh, well, here, let me just read this one. I mean, there are a lot of great paragraphs in here. Uh, he says, quote, the mornings, therefore. So it starts out, you know, he's, he's out in uh, Monument National Park, and he's the one ranger in the whole park. And this is before it got built up the way that it is now and I think it's it must be heading into winter or coming out of winter something like that and he's talking about his mornings which is a very thorough thing to do and he's definitely a, a child of well he has a few fathers I think Thoreau is one Muir is another one <laughs> Roosevelt could go on um, the mornings therefore I'm reading now. As I started to say and meant to say are all the sweeter in the knowledge of what the afternoon is likely to bring. Before beginning the morning chores, I like to sit on the sill of my doorway, bare feet planted on the ground and a mug of hot coffee in hand, facing the sunrise. The air is gelid, not far above freezing, but the butane heater inside the trailer keeps my back warm. The rising sun warms the front, and the coffee warms the interior. Mm. End quote. Gallad made me think of you. Because of Orwell. <laughs> <laughs> also because I thought to myself, I don't know that word. I don't know that word either, yeah. And I'm not actually, I'm not going to look it up. You just have to take it. You just have to take the context take clues. the context. I'll look it up later. Context clues. But it's a beautiful sounding word. Gallad, gosh. That is, that is something, huh? Yeah, and he has a lot of those words throughout the book where it's just a beautiful choice of word that you don't see very often, um, yet he's using it. Yeah, and he definitely has, I would say, a kind of Adam vibe. Like, he, he thinks he's in, he calls the national park that he's in his garden. And he, he's kind, I think he's, 
leaning into that myth um, or trying to embody that myth or resonate with the myth to direct his approach to being in the park. Hmm. Yeah. We spent a lot of time alone in the park. I have called it a garden, and it is a rock garden. That's what he says, he, among other things. It speaks to the solitude, too. Yeah. What you're talking about is the, the atom, the atomistic element to that. Yeah. Because he was, you know, he spent all that time in the watchtower by himself. A lot of solitude. Yes. The morning is solitude, too. Yes. So what do you, you know... It, the mornings are the probably the only time of day really where things do feel as though they belong to you in the world. Mm-hmm. If you think of no, 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 so, not in a propertyed sense, mm-hmm. but like the moment, the, the time. moment you actually uh, things are slowed down. What he's describing there is a sense of belonging, which, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> as I just before you got here, I was reading Emerson's Nature again, and. I think he's getting at the, that's the ultimate struggle that people have with nature. So they feel like they should just conquer it. Right. It's, it's the feeling of like trying to belong in it. And you look at the stars and the clouds and it's so far, but you feel attached to those things. Right. Just the, the heavens. Right. But when you're staring at the ocean and then you, you feel it, but you feel it at a distance. When you get in it, you don't feel it in the same way. Right. You're always trying to get to the next thing with the na- actual nature. Right. And then people end up feeling more comfortable conquering it. Mm-hmm. And pe- certain people, like Abby and Thoreau, I think, and um, I think Abby, you know, these guys who were environmental but weren't. Yes, Abby was like a, a menace. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, but they weren't attached to like just fighting, mm-hmm. because then you're not then you're not fighting to keep it. I mean, mm-hmm. keep nature. I mean, he was very much a conservationist, but he he also just liked to enjoy it. Right. There's a lot of people who want to fight to save the planet, to fulfill some existential some meaning hero in project. their own life, some right. hero project, but right. don't really enjoy it. These people live in New York City. They. Oh my God. They live in, you know, they live in San Francisco where people shed on the street. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they, it's a, a literal disaster. It's a disaster. And but not, you're crying about somewhere else. Oh, it should be this way. It should be that way. It's like, move there then and go participate and fix it. And, and in be, person. That's the idea, right? If you want to fix something, get, first of all, fix your doorstep. Mm-hmm. It's, that's, uh, who, who, who was saying that? It was recently. That's Confucius. Mm-hmm. No, we talked about him a little bit because I right. was reading him. You can't fix anything in the world without right. having your own house in order. Take the log out of your own eye. Um, the what is it? Take the lo- this is Jesus. Take the log out of your own eye Ooh. before you try to take the speck out of someone else's. <sighs> the goat. Right, right. <laughs> the g- <laughs> Jesus was a goat, dude. He, was a goat. <laughs> he is the greatest of all time. <laughs> He's like the Michael Jordan of philosophy. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. I did read Confucius a little while ago when I, actually when I was in Jerusalem, I found this copy at this used bookstore um, off Ben Yehuda Street. And uh, yeah, I, I, I was reading a lot of old philosophy and I read the Analects and it was 
it was pretty much the same as it is re- reading the Beatitudes. Um, it was it was good. You but four hundred BC. Yeah, and you know, I think people have a lot of thoughts. Oh, Jesus went east and all this stuff. I'm like, there's just there's, there's if you really think about things, there's this thing called common sense. When you, when you're dwelling on an issue and you're being honest. Those and humble, you come to pretty much the same conclusions because the human condition is the same. Well, if you believe in truth, and no matter your society, yeah. striving for an idea of truth, yeah, you're probably going to come to similar conclusions. Yes, it's, and maybe worded a little bit differently, yeah. but it's in substance pretty the, much the same. And the Chinese, I think, you know, you talk about the art of war. Yeah, they're playing their long game by just you can tell they're playing their philosophy. Of, you know, not interrupting enemies, making their own mistakes. Let them just degrade themselves. And Napoleon said the same thing, and I don't think he read The Art of War. Yeah, but he fucked up. (laughs) Because, well, he did with with Russia. True. And he kept making his own mistakes by going inland. Well, that's just, I think that's what happens when you are metaphysically arrogant. Like, when when you're not acknowledging that... This place just isn't for you. There's a different dominion here, and Europe is not supposed That's to have dominion. Though. He just he there. was making his own mistakes. Yeah. Anybody listen, you don't mess with Russia. That's that's the that's the takeaway from history, from World War Two. Yeah. Napoleon. And... Simple historical <laughs> argument. Just. It's a hard battle. Yeah. Land wars in Asia and Eurasia. <sighs> it's just so much land, but. I don't want to go there, uh, but uh, I want to. I, I keep wanting to bring it back to Abby because we're we're there. But I, you know, I want to talk about sort of. I'm hoping to talk about the, some of the ideas that you pull from Abby and just we can ex, expound. Well, on let's them. go. So, but, one of the things that I think. He's, doing is he's rejecting tamed space. The cities. Um, even the systems in modernity, uh, the kind of post-industrial age that he's found himself in, are all constructed such that the outcomes for any question are always known. And he is trying to find a space in which the environment is not tamed, so chaos can happen, and he can be challenged mm-hmm. in the face of chaos. And this is, I haven't finished the book, I'm a little over halfway, uh, and then I read those other couple essays. But that's the vibe I'm getting from him, is that he wants to be challenged as a man in the wild. And there's this <coughs> paragraph, excuse me. He says, um, we need more predators. It's two paragraphs. The sheepmen complain, it is true, that the coyotes eat some of their lambs. This is true. But do they eat enough? I mean, enough lambs to keep the coyotes sleek, healthy, and well-fed. That is my concern. As for the sacrifice of an occasional lamb, that seems to me a small price to pay for the support of the coyote population. The lambs accustomed 
by tradition to their role, do not complain, and the sheepmen who run their hooved locusts on the public lands and are heavily subsidized, most of them as hog-rich as they are pig-headed, can easily afford these trifling losses. We need more coyotes, more mountain lions, more wolves and foxes and wild cats, more owls, hawks, and eagles, the livestock interests and their hired mercenaries from the Predator Control Agency have pursued all of these animals with unremitting ferocity and astonishing cruelty for nearly a century, utilizing in this campaign of extermination everything from the gun and trap to the airplane and the most ingenious devices of chemical and biological warfare. Not content with shooting coyotes from airplanes and hunting lions with dogs, these bounty hunters, self-styled sportsmen, and government agents like to plant poisoned meat all over the landscape, distribute tons of poisoned tallow balls by air, and hide baited cyanide guns in the ground and brush, a threat to humans as well as animals. Still not satisfied, they have developed and begun to use a bio biochemical compound which makes sterile any animal foolish enough to take the bait. His problem is with the structures and the financing of them and the modern weaponry. Because if, if we were, he has no problem with hunting, really, or, but he has, he has a problem with bureaucracies financing and, and, and doing these things unnaturally. Because if, if you were to kill a coyote, if he was to come across a coyote in his hiking or something, he was faced with the need to kill it or whatever, he would. He wouldn't, he wouldn't surrender himself <coughs> to a pack of coyotes. I would think he would fight it. Right. But, but he would say that that's man's challenge in the, in the natural environment mm -hmm. rather than the bureaucratically right. financed... Well, what's interesting about these animals is the coyotes, mountain lions, wolves, foxes, wildcats, owls, hawks, eagles. These are hunters. Mm -hmm. These are heroic animals that go out into chaotic possibility and they make something happen right. so that they can survive. It's not like the sheep. You know, the sheep are not heroic animals. Well, that's true too. And so I think what one of the things, well, at least what I'm getting from these couple of paragraphs is he's lamenting that the heroic type is being hunted to not necessarily extinction I mean extinction in some cases but to levels where it just doesn't really exist uh, in these spaces and, and natural and, yeah and, natural and you know and that's also kind of like the way that we have all these heroic animals in zoos these days right because it's the wild is just not because the wild has become so tamed where every single inch of wild land or what was wild land is now owned by people mm -hmm. and the people don't want to feel unsafe with, with these right. heroic animals or they're damaging the environment or whatever it's, it's, and so they can't even exist these there. are acts of subversion against nature yes and, and against the but strong. even the heroic type for humans is under attack and has been under attack for a long time I think it's breaking out. I mean, I think it'll always there will always be the heroic, at least in possibility. But it's kind of like modernity and post-modernity um, <laughs> just expressing their uh, disdain for inequality. 
because the hero is naturally an unequal mm -hmm. character, an unequal being. Um, and when you have a an entire world paradigm based on equality as one of its gods, one of its highest ideals, well, then that ideal of equality is going to be expressed in every part. Equality is the ideal outcome of that world, but it's weakness that becomes the ideal. Right, right. And or so, if virgin. you have a heroic, non-weak animal, yeah. You gotta tame it. You gotta tame it. Yeah. Or yeah. a heroic, non-weak space. It must, you know, the grass must be mown. It's interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting lens to look through. That I always read his work as sort of a critique of just the systems of capitalism, or or he even says in Writer's Credo, if it's capitalism that's running it, you must critique that. But mm -hmm. if it's communism or socialism that's running it, you must critique that. Right. You must always critique the systems that are destroying our natural way of life. Way of life doesn't matter who's running it. Right. Doesn't matter what color, right. you know, stripe people are, are. So I always looked at it sort of just through Abby is through that lens of like he freely hated all of the bureaucracy. Right. Well, also, <laughs> he didn't care who was running the bureaucracy. It was the fact that it existed. That, that bothered him. I think another thing that he, he doesn't like and that I agree with is the commodification of this space. Even though you have a national park and even mm -hmm. though it's for... He talks about that struggle right in the beginning of the book where the law, as it's written, I forget exactly what it says, but it's for the people, but it's also supposed to be preserved. And so the people who like building things, the bureaucrats who like building things, say, oh, well, if it's for the people, we need to build more roads. We need to increase mm -hmm. access. We need to have all these amenities. But the people who lean more toward the preservation don't want to build all of those things. No, because the only way to interact with nature as he sees it is to step on a cactus barefoot, basically. Right, right. Yeah, he talks about crawling. you got to go and crawl until you bleed. And you gotta, maybe you'll see something, but he does probably that. not. He, he does that, that in that essay, Walk in the Desert Hills. He, his feet are bleeding through his boots. He has to cut open the toe, and he ends up literally kicking a cactus by mistake. Oh, my gosh. And he thinks he, he, thinks he did something else. He, he thinks a scorpion bit him or a snake. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm in trouble, you know, and he looks down, and he's just got, like, needles in his toe. Oh, my gosh. But to him, that's part of... The experience, like right. just like not having enough water, right? You're gonna go find it in nature. I mean, he had some idea in these in this hike, yeah, that there were these basins. But even when he gets there, he's like, it's two feet deep and full of bugs. But I drank it, and because you know, yeah, the worst you can get is dysentery, and you'll survive. He's just like, well, something like that. I'm so thirsty, it's good, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's one puddle he drank from that he knew was, you know, that he knew was coming. Because he, he planned it somewhat. Right. Where it was like, he's like, you know, he was thirsty, but it was bad. Yeah. <laughs> he even admits it was bad. He's like, this is bad water. But he slept like a baby afterwards because he was hydrated, you know. Right. And he didn't, he didn't even fill, he didn't even like fill anything he had with it. He just like took what he needed. Right. He's like, I got 30 miles to go. Oh my gosh. In the desert. In, in like December, but still. It can get quite cold. Well, cold, it was, I think it was comfortable when he did mm -hmm. that hike, but I just think it's funny. You know, he's, he's, he, 
He just winged it. I mean, he did die at 62 years old, but he winged it. Really? That's it? Yeah, alcohol, I think. I think. Oh. Yeah, he was, he had a problem with the bottle, I believe. I, I don't, don't hold me to that. I don't know. Yeah. He's bleeding internally from something. Mm. Like I think, yeah, I think he had some vices. Well, <laughs> women. Right. And alcohol. Yeah. Um, you know, because he, he, he said, you know, people shouldn't reproduce, have kids. He had five. Really? He had five children. Yeah. But he, he probably yeah, like one wasn't each very woman, in, but involved. Oh, I see. No, he was. He, yeah, I think he was a dad, you know, father. Yeah, father. Yeah, a father. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, and I don't want to get into all that history of, of his uh, life or anything, but I just, um, part, of, part of the vice, you know, it's funny that he would say, we need to limit the population growth and then have five kids. But there's a conflict in nature there. Right. Well, it's not, yeah, it's not, as you know, that simple as we should just limit the population. He thought we should limit certain parts of the population. Um, so that's probably why he felt at liberty to do that. But then again, you know, people have a lot of ideals and, yeah. and they won't. And they can conflict. Sure. They can conflict. Um, I want to, I want to talk about the writer's credo. Yeah, let's do it. Cause that's, oh, that's probably, that's the most important thing I probably ever read by him. Mm. Cause I actually ripped certain lines of it in songs I wrote. I do this a lot. I just pull direct things and I just go, that's cool. <coughs> I can't say it any better. Uh, I think that's the way to go. So the writer's credo. Homages. All around. I reread this, and you read it. Mm -hmm. And the biggest takeaway um, that I that I continue to get, there are a few that I take from it, but <clears throat> I'll read from it real quick here. I venture to assert that truth, for one thing, is the enemy of powers. Power is the enemy of truth. Um, and it goes on to say, if he is a good writer, he will never like any government he lives under. His hand should be against it, and its hand will always be against him. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe, it says here, that's from a letter that, that I believe he wrote. Uh, in the, no, this isn't, this isn't from him. But that's, that's a, a quote that he felt as if he had to put in here. So, to assert truth... <clears throat> And to hate your government. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the, not to hate your government, to press it. Mm. Uh, and I think that's probably the most, in my opinion, that's the most important thing in there. Because when the writer loses those things. Right. Ver loses the pursuit of truth. Right. And loses the ability to be an antagonist to the actual system. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of writers and broadcasters and mm -hmm. people who write. Mm -hmm. um, people who write are not being writers mm -hmm. right now. But we have a lot of these people who think they're resisting. And I think we talked about this a little bit. They think they're resisting an order yeah. or a structure right? because they, they can get up and critique Steve Bannon, you know, who's right. like probably going to go to jail or something. You know? Uh, Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but they're not. They're, 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 if your writing or your work is being a foot soldier for 
whatever regime is really has the power, the bureaucratic power, the stamp of power, the power yeah. to destroy reputations, the power to destroy uh, people's ability to work or get right. credit for, to buy a home. Yeah. Well, this, this universal, this long trend, like if you're looking at history as waves of things happening, one of the biggest waves that you could point to immediately would be this post, I mean, I think it goes back to Plato actually, but we'll just stay with the Enlightenment. You have this universal egalitarianism that comes from Enlightenment philosophy. And if your literature is just parroting the philosophy, even though your story may be, you know, in 2022 uh, and it's in LA. If the philosophy underlying that story is just about universal egalitarianism, then you're not rebelling against anything. You're a foot soldier for the status quo. And that's what the Enlightenment is, you think? I think so. All of it? I think the Enlightenment was... I think that, well, it, obviously within it there's the possibility for greatness. Yes. Because um, there's always two sides to everything that happens. But I think fundamentally uh, it's an egalitarian philosophy. When you're saying that every single person um, is equal because of their ability to reason, um, well, that's a, that's a universal claim. And it's also picking out only one facet of human being and making it the supreme facet over all other facets, like your maleness or femaleness or your strength, various features of your biology or even of your culture, your spirituality. There are many, many facets to being a human, but if you just pick out reason and you say, well, every human being has access to reason, and therefore we're all equal because of our equal access to reason. Well, we know that that's actually not true because of certain ways that we can measure people using reason in practice. Um, but that kind of uh, one-sided or one fast, unifaceted approach to looking at humans and valuing them um, ends up being very detrimental because all the other facets end up suffering. Mm. So that's why I think that the Enlightenment ultimately is an egalitarian project. Even though you can have... you, So there will be people who are very reasonable and they embrace reason, they make great discoveries with reason. Um, but if they're only embracing reason at the expense of all these other facets, uh, then you're losing a lot of things. And that, you can take it to, say, the national parks, where you have this, I mean, the connection, it would be, I would have to think about, I know that the connection is there and I've read about it. Um, I don't think I could recapitulate it right now. But the connection between uh, enlightenment values and the commodification of untamed space, namely in the national parks, uh, 
um, because it goes back to what you're talking about about destroying the heroes of the wilderness. Right. You know, you you do things in a national park. You make these roads so that, you know, you can even see this on in really any national park in this country. There are these hikes you can you can hike that will reward you with a view and you'll get up there though and there's a there's right. a pull off for for cars right, right, and, right. and all of the yeah very obese Americans will get out yeah. and and be like look what I can see you know, know. it's like well I just earned this view right but and I had to go on the hero's journey yeah well it's the difference between the person who climbed the mountain and the person who drove up well that but that's literally what happens in the parks right everybody wants to be able to drive up and you know what ultimately yeah, ends up happening? Yeah, you don't want the journey. You know what happens? What? You get, you get like going to the Sun Road in uh, Glacier. Mm. Maybe I'm wrong here, but, but if, even if I am, the idea stands. <laughs> but that road's closed most of the year to traffic. Right. But I think it might end up ultimately being closed to everybody mm. because they just close it for traffic and you can't even go up it anyway. Right. Which is a long hike, but... <clears throat> we were talking about critics... And there are these riders, and we're saying, you know, if you're just being a part mm -hmm. of the large wave, you're not critiquing anything. You're, you're just being the parrot. Or you're participating in... You're, you're, you're merely being a face for this leviathan. Um, and you're not really being an individual. You're not being you. Of course, you know, there's the whole debate about individualism and... That's a that's a whole enlightenment thing too. But um, the raw, the what's he say? Uh, I don't have the book here. I don't know why I'm pointing to it. The raw in in civil disobedience. He's talking about the individual is the ultimate uh, deserves the utmost respect as the ultimate uh, minority in society. Yes. Which is very that's like a conservative belief too. You hear that a lot from conservative groups will say that the, the most vulnerable minority in the United States or in, or in society or in a democratic society is the individual. Right. Which mm -hmm. is one of the tensions we have in our own country. Because right. I didn't we mean have... to sidetrack us. But... <clears throat> no, I think that's very much part of the conversation. You know, we have this uh, representative democracy where you're constantly making decisions based on a majority of voters, but you're also trying to part of the culture or the political culture is to protect or the political tradition let's call it is to protect and privilege the minority yeah which which is a tension the minority being the wealthy and also the minority being well the protections for the minority is a good thing yes largely usually unless it's weaponized which it has been yeah it depends on what you view as the money. Everybody thinks that they're the my they're the. At the same time, they think that they're the minority and the majority. Right. <laughs> you know. You know. People will say we're the majority of the country. You voted this way. It's like, but we're also the minority. Democracy is so ridiculous. <laughs> well, it is. It's just. Yeah, no, it, I, I lean that way it, a lot these days. It doesn't but. guarantee you anything as a free man. It doesn't. Nothing. You're just. You're just at the whim of. What, if your country is full of people who aren't really thinking, you're at the whim of a non-thinking mass of people. Yeah, and the, whoever controls the, <clears throat> the, the media, the main outlets that of too. media. 
Then that's not even a democracy, though. Yeah. You're just getting fed. Right. You, do you have free will if you really don't have that much ability to... I mean, I think we do, but you have to, you have to work for it. Mm -hmm. You have to work for your free will at that mm -hmm. stage. If all of the channels and all the outlets are poisoning you, right. you have to be like, Ugh, yeah. I'm checking out. But then you check out. Edward Abbey was an anarchist. Abbey. That's right. You be, that's, that's the only anarchism right. there is. I thought it was pretty funny in that essay. What, what essay is it called? The, the, one, the one you you told me to read. I read the one before it. Eco-defense? Yeah, eco-defense. <laughs> How he's talking about... I got him in trouble. Did it really? Yeah, for H sure. How? What happened? Because he's, it's like environmental terrorism he's advocating. Right. right. <laughs> Here's what you do. You spike trees with nails. I mean, works. I guess. It seems to work. He but his argument is so fascinating in that because he's saying... Do you not have the right to defend your home as an American? Right. My home is the wilderness. Yep. That's what he's saying. Yeah. Americans have the right to defend their 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 homes, their abodes, yeah, their yeah. their cabins if they live. Yes. I'm going to defend the woods. Right. I'm going to defend the desert. Yeah. You know, and that was his reasoning behind yeah. it. He's, and, and in that way, his life was a critique. Mm -hmm. Because the main currents are pushing toward, again, the commodification of everything, where every single thing that you do, every space that you enter, every single thing that you do in that space has to be modified, or sorry, monetized, which is commodified. Yeah. And he's rejecting that. The funny thing is, though, that he is kind of monetizing these things by than writing about them. Yeah. Um, and I think about that. He never directly says, he, he, okay, so he never says. Yeah, he's not saying don't do it. Don't work, don't have money, don't have a job. Yeah, of he's course. saying growth for the sake of growth. Yes. His famous quote is the ideology of the cancer yes. cell. Yes. Growth just to grow right. is ridiculous. And that was his view on migration. Right. Illegal migration mm -hmm. or even just. Migration in general is like, why are we growing to grow our GDP? To what? You know, everybody's argument is that, well, it'll grow our economy. It'll right. make, we'll have more workers, we'll have more. Right. And, and that's what, fine. What is, what is the limiting factor? You can, you can have that belief. Uh, I, I don't necessarily even disagree. Right. I, don't, I don't believe that we should stop migration. Um, but but just, letting it, just letting things grow, metastasize for... for because of capital? Well, the thing with migration, though, is that it needs to be... You need to have a limiting factor on it because you can't just... No country on the planet is just going to allow um, unordered immigration into it. Are, because what, they need to be able to absorb new people in, in an orderly fashion. That's one of the big reasons, though, we're seeing it right now. This actually is in that region of the country. Mm -hmm. Is you have to know how much resources are at your disposal. Right. They're running out of water. Right. There's too much use. There's too much going on. Maybe, maybe it wasn't anything more than misuse and overuse right. of what you have. Right. You can't just overuse the resource that you have. Right. You can't dump 
islands of waste in the ocean. Um, you can't drink or drain or water all your lawns in L.A. indefinitely and expect the, the, the earth to provide you with things that you've over... You've overshot your load there, you know? Right. That sounded a little perverted. <laughs> but, but, uh, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, there needs to... All of this well, talk... Well, it's about absorption. It's, it's actually the law that immigration needs to be done in an orderly fashion so that we can absorb whoever we're allowing to come here. Any population growth, really, right? But, but then without well, getting... Anti- no, it's it's about immigration, not necessarily just population growth. Because we don't have to. If you are an American citizen, you know you can have as many kids as you want. Um, and if enough people did that, that would be numbers of population growth. But strictly concerning immigration, it needs to be done in an orderly fashion. But e- but even people within this country, I'm, what I'm saying is, yeah, I look at Asheville and it's growing. It's growing. Right. It's growing. And it's starting to get ugly. It's starting to lose some of its character even. Mm. We have the rain, the resources here, right? right we right. can sustain, we can grow. Well, who's coming to Asheville, uh, would you say? People from New York, people from uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Illinois, yeah. Chicago. People who want a smaller town. But for one, you... And it's, but they still want good food. And you have the right, yeah. You have the right to live where you want, I sure. believe. That's... Uh, but... But at some point, I think it's only responsible for cities, especially a city like L.A. To well, say, I don't know if you have the right, but continue. I know what you're saying. Well, you have the right to movement, right? You have yeah. the, you, as a person, yeah. within your own country, you have a right sure, to movement. Sure, sure. But I think at some point, cities have to start planning and saying, look, we're, this is kind of our capacity. Instead of saying, well, we can just build up. We yeah. build out. L.A. never, never stopped building out. Right. Think about all the, the the things that they've dried up out there because they just believe in like the nuclear cloud just shrooming out there, and it's so poorly planned. Yep. They have smog. They have all these you know issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point, you you maybe say, but but then that conflicts with like the free market to mm-hmm. say like, look, the city's reached its cap. Right. We if we keep building here, if we keep bringing people in here, we're gonna run out of our water, our right. trees, our right. good soil. They're they're running out of good soil because there's, you see the mudslides. Right. It's, it's such a mess, man. But it's, is it? My point being, is it actually that the environment or nature is trying to kill us through climate change, through all this stuff, and that's a whole conversation on itself, or are we? misusing the mechanisms provided to us through abundance but misusing them and overusing them in certain areas <clears throat> that it's killing us at the most vulnerable points mm-hmm. the desert is a vulnerable place LA sits on the edge of a desert I keep using LA but you could use um, cities in Florida that get hit by hurricanes right the unnaturalness of uh, Katrina in New Orleans with the levee breaking, well, that's not even a natural thing. I mean, we're testing the limits of nature. Right. That's what Abby was was rejecting. We're pushing the limits of this thing. You can't control. Right. Do you know, because I don't know, I wanted to look into it, but I didn't have time. Do you know what exactly his connection is to Greenpeace? Is he just an um, inspiration? Or was, was he... 
I think it was actually more, part of it. Well, I think he was connected to Earth first. Okay. Which was more like we're gonna blow up dams, and you know put sand in bulldozer gas tanks. Oh my gosh. Earth first got you know they got people arrested. Really? Yeah, people FBI infiltrated Earth first. Wow. Yeah, that sounds and right. The Monkey Wrench Gang, just like young people read that and were like, oh, yeah. Right. Like and it's like that's a lot of uh, responsibility to carry. Right. As a writer, <laughs> to like oh you you know and he didn't care. He was like, cool, that's what I want to happen, you know, but that's, is that incitement in a way? <laughs> Would that be incitement today? Probably. Like, he incited these people to... Probably. So, he wasn't a part of Greenpeace, he's part of Earth First. You said he got kicked out of the board, right? Something like that? He got into some kicked really, off. he got really into some trouble for his views on migration at some point. What did he say? What, for his views on migration? Yeah. You know what he said. He said <laughs> I just want to hear you say it. <laughs> well, like, you know, that's what he said when they get to the border. You give them a rifle and send them home, and they'll solve their own problems. And It's like such a simple view of things, obviously. Yeah, obviously it's more complicated. But migration's the touchiest, probably the touchiest subject in American politics right now. One of them, for sure. Besides, like, gun violence. But migration's really tricky. Um, I wonder why that is. I think it's because of the... Well, it's definitely weaponized. Yeah, yeah. When you have certain people funding these caravans... Sure. ...at opportune moments. Um, a lot of these different things have been weaponized, actually. It's, it's very weird. I have this conversation with... I think I even had it uh, this morning it's to some degree. We talked about... Um, Again, I'm not even I'm not an opponent of migration, but I I realize that there has to be limits, right? Because you want you want to keep your your blood fresh, your country for your country fresh. Sure, sure. You want to be able to have, you know, one of the arguments I hear a lot is you want to you want to have good food in the cities, you want to have Korean cuisine and uh, Asian barbecue. And, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Greek food. Hey, for sure, you want to, and not even just food, but just different. Things that Chinatown brings to New York, or um, um, or some other. You know, there are plenty of examples. Italian neighborhoods in Providence. Mm -hmm. Hey, those are great. Yeah, these things are wonderful. Nobody's going to argue that. But again, you have to look at all sides of it. Right. You know, economically, when we talk about Bernie Sanders, he used to say, "Look, this is bad for labor to have excess labor." Right. Coming over the, you know, if you're gonna look at it from a material, material perspective. Yeah. But then there's also the like cultural elements and the, like how many languages can the country speak, right? And, and how much growth can we permit in cities that are very migration friendly? Right. Like L.A., like San Francisco. Sure. New York City. Um, ah, New York is actually not that friendly. Even North Carolina, actually. <laughs> <laughs> They've, they've been complaining about the North. Texan buses. Yeah, yeah, I know. Send them back. I know. It's which is really sad, actually. I think the, it's that these people are being used are being used as on, political on both sides of that. On both sides. I don't like that either. I, I'm uncomfortable with people being ushered onto buses and dropped into places. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, well, first of all, they shouldn't just be able to walk across the border into no. Texas. But then 
I mean, it's it's difficult. Can you blame the Texans? Because no. the New Yorkers are the ones who are crying the loudest about the border when it's right. being protected and closed in Texas. Oh, it should be open. They're having their little walks down the avenues. But then when you bring them the immigrants, then they're like, oh, you can, you have to stop. We can't, we can't help them. It's too much. Yeah. I, I, I don't think it's unfair to say, hey, like you're, this is something that you're a proponent of. Um, and I'll, I'll give to the people who are in the cities there who have tried to organize yeah. and help people who yeah. are coming in. I give them credit. Like they're actually acting. They're not just like, no, turn them around and send them to right. back to the border and like make them make Texas deal with it. And then, right. They're actually tr- there are people like grassroots people trying yeah. to help people. And I think, look, I I empathize with a lot of those people, but I, I think it's a really tough balance. I mean, you, you can't just you can't just let drugs like that flow in. I mean, it's it's I don't know. I don't want to go down like this being yeah, the one yeah. Abby, the one Abby thing we talk about, but it's, it's, he, you know, he had an opinion on it. And just for the sake of growing, I, I, I happen to think that maybe this country's at capacity, hmm. just in terms of what we can use resource-wise. And maybe it, at least for onboarding people who need help. For sure. When they're coming in. And I want to be able, to, I want to be able to see people helped. I want to yeah. see. I want to see the. I want to see all the countries that people are fleeing do well. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Mexico's doing really well. You've got Californians fleeing to Mexico now. <laughs> True. At, at least the laptop people. Oh, the laptop people. Yeah. Yeah, they're fleeing to Mexico to buy their food and the, to live there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mexico is not even a, an exporter of migrants really anymore because it's a great country. To a degree, it's a great country now. You know, they've come up a. I see what you're saying. Yeah, well, it is a lot of people that are actually going through Mexico. It's not. So I guess what you're saying is it's not necessarily Mexicans. Oh, they're not the mi- they're not part. <clears throat> they're not the migrants coming right, in. Right. It's it's Mexico's a bridge, a land bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, but it used to be Mexico. Right. It used to be a lot of Mexican migration. I mean, you see, uh, this community has a lot of Mexican migrants in it. Sure. Yeah. Um, and they're awesome. Yeah. You know, aren't you part Mexican? Yeah. You're pretty good. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I got to get my passport. Um, oh, you don't have it? No, I'm, I'm, I'm working with my mom to, you let to it get lapse. another passport. No, I, I've never got... I have my American passport. How'd you passport. go to Israel? I have my American passport. Oh, you want your Mexican passport. Yes. Cool. So I can go to Cuba. Ooh. Fraternize with the communists. See the cool colors? <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, yeah, of course. See the cool uh, old cars and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, let me um, let me transition us a little bit. I want I had some questions for you. <clears throat> um, so you know I read I read uh, Thoreau this morning, mm-hmm. and he talks about um, a few things, obviously in civil disobedience, but just a couple big ideas. Being that he's sort of the the forefather, spiritual forefather of uh, Abby, mm-hmm. cynical but witty. Yeah. He talks about um, something that I think Abby gets at in uh, 
that essay on eco defense, which you know he talked. We talked about how he believed that he was defending his home. Mm-hmm. That gets into the role of the conscience. What is the role of the conscience um, in acting as resistance to all of the mechanisms of the state that are destroying the land, that are destroying the not, the, not even just destroying, but overbuilding, um, sterilizing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What is that? Is the conscience the ultimate piece of the minority that you must follow, no matter what? Because he was willing to, you know, he went to jail for that. Well, I think it's a question of harmony. So your conscience, your and your will outside of that, maybe. Ah, let's just stay on the conscience. Your conscience and the actions that your body takes for you to have a harmonious existence that doesn't become schizophrenic should probably agree in the things that they do. So you're doing something and your conscience is not feeling, dis- is not being dissonant with the actions of your body in the world. But if your conscience says one thing and your body is doing another thing, or your body is being required to do another thing for reasons of survival, and your conscience just has to go along with it. um, Oh, (laughs) that gets back into the writer's credo. Yes. Um, And writers not speaking truth to power. Right. Because they want to keep their job at the New York Times, yeah, or they, yeah. you know, yes, I think that's the the where I wanted to go with that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a schizophrenic type of situation. The conscience, though, can in trusting that more than anything, can lead you to be entirely alone. Mm-hmm. I mean, entirely. Yeah, because while your body is out in the world doing one thing, and your mind can't be with your body, your mind has to. Or not, not your mind, but your conscience, what you believe you ought to be doing, mm-hmm. um, can't agree with, can't go along with the body. So it kind of like disappears, gets sublimated, and, uh, and then you end up with what we would call mental problems. Yes. But, but it's not really... Right, so then you're having this problem and then... You know, modernity is going to say, or post-modernity is going to say, well, we need to medicate you then, because you can't handle this world in which your conscience cannot agree with what your body is doing. So you need to be medicated so that we can just turn off your awareness of what you believe morally about this situation that Mm -hmm. your body is in. And, but the conscience is having a reasonable response to the absurdity of what the body is having to go through. And then once you are medicated you are totally cut off from and at odds with nature. True. Because that conscience is part of it. Right. And, and I, 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 get, I get where Thoreau and Abby were coming from mm-hmm. when they're talking about the conscience being sort of the, the only thing to guide you in decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like all of society, it's like that... Uh, even Stephen King did that in The Storm. You ever, you ever see that movie? Or read the book, The Storm? No. I don't read Stephen King, but 
Me neither. Uh, there was like one guy against the whole community because right. he was right. Hmm. And they ended up like taking his kid from him. Really? You know. Um, but it was a lottery. Have you read that story? No. no. A short story where there's... Stephen King too? No. I read that in... The lottery. It's a short story. Yeah, I forget. I don't know who wrote it. It's pretty... They teach it in schools. The town is... They do this thing where it's just like a get-together, but... Hmm. And they do this thing called the lottery, and everybody draws like a marble from the bag. And, yeah, this sounds but like wacko. The, but the person who draws like the black stone gets stoned to death with... Yeah. You know, and that's like their tradition. Even wow. though, and I, I can't remember if somebody stands against it, but um, or the, so the person getting stoned at death certainly does. They're like, this is wrong, you know? Yeah. But yep. they didn't have any problem with it before. Mm. Um, and that, that conscience, though, being at odds with... Well, that's the minority and the majority question again. And there's a, a fellow who some of our listeners probably know. You might know. Do you know of uh, Rene Girard? I don't. He, he wrote a, a number of books. He was a French philosopher. He just died um, within the past 10 years, maybe the past five years, I think. Very recent. Um, and he studied mimesis. So people, there are two parties. Um, Party A, Party B. Party B has something that Party A wants and does not have. And so because they want the thing, that part, because Party A has or wants what Party B has, there arises conflict. And his argument is that all conflict that happens between humans is a question of mimetic desire and there's a book that he wrote called that I I've only read one of his books and listened to some of his talks but it's called Satan fall I see Satan fall like lightning and it's about how apparently in all the myths around the world there is always a scapegoat um, or at least all the myths in which there's a conflict between a majority and a minority, the minority is always the scapegoat. And they are also always guilty in all these stories around the world. The only time in history that the minority is not guilty... So, for example, you have a city, and the city has a plague... And um, there's one person who has done something wrong. They've offended the gods. <clears throat> and because they've offended the gods, the city has the plague. And everybody wants to know, well, what's the reason for the plague? we got to get rid of it. And finally they figure out that, oh, it's that this person did something wrong. And so they have to kill that person. And when they kill him or her, then the plague goes away. And so that person is the scapegoat. So for most of these stories around the world where you have that dynamic between the, the guilty minority and the righteous majority, the minority is actually guilty. But there's one group of people in the world where that dynamic is flipped repeatedly, and that's the Hebrews. 
they made it so that the the minority is the innocent one and the majority is guilty and so you see this especially in the story of jesus where the city jerusalem is in an uproar um they've been riled up uh by the the temple and the the pharisees and Sadducees who don't, these religious parties who don't like Jesus. And, and they decide to kill him in order to have political peace of mind where they are because they, they feel that he's a threat to their authority for these Pharisees and Sadducees and then to the system for the temple. Um, and they kill him. But the, the thing that's different is that this minority, this individual, is actually innocent. And Rene Girard ends up making these arguments about how, because in this instance the minority is innocent, it like changes some things metaphysically. Um, but that's probably where, for our civilization, and I think Nietzsche makes this argument, that's where our um, our tendency to to think that the, the minority is more correct or more righteous comes from. It's like the most important story mm. in Christian civilization is about this righteous minority. And so uh, whenever we encounter mi- our minorities, our trigger reaction is to say, well, this, pro- this minority is probably righteous. Minorities being a g- groups of... Any types of people, not necessarily yeah, who racial, are major, yeah, 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 <laughs> racial as, minorities, of course. But they, the the word gets used that way in our society, right, right, right. Like minorities being, you know, people of color. Yes, yes, yes. It's like, whoa, hold on, no, it's so we're clear. It, yeah, but you know, not that the people who listen to this wouldn't understand that you're talking about the minority down to the individual, of course. As, as a, yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. What would you advocate for? What, what would I advocate Yeah, for? what would you... It's neither, right? I mean, it's, it's you neither. you got to go on a case-by-case case basis. That's right. You can't just... Like, we also have rebel worship in this country because our founding was one of a minority of rebels. An underdog. Yeah, that's what I mean. And Sorry, everybody underdog wants, worship. Everybody wants to be part of that. So if you Even, can frame yourself as the underdog, then you know that other people are going to think you're righteous. And this is why the regime... Yes. You know, the hegemonic but, parties try to frame themselves as fighting this nebulous right. patriarchy but, but or whatever. Even, like, where is that? But honestly? even politicians and every super successful person, mm-hmm. you know, you know, Scranton Joe and uh, oh, yeah, yeah, Little yeah, Town yeah. in Arkansas, Bill Clinton. And, uh-huh. Everybody came from humble roots where they, like, you know, had their hands in the dirt. Yeah. And, um, and, and that's just funny because that's like an American tradition. Nobody, Donald Trump was the first pre- politician I'd seen in my life who just came out of the gates was like, I'm rich. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, I'm rich, I've always been. I had a small loan of a million dollars. You know? <laughs> my father gave me a small loan. <laughs> And he was like, all right, yeah, I'm just, I, I grew up rich. Like, I worked hard, but I was like, yeah, I'm from New York City. I read his book. And, um, and I liked it. <laughs> and uh, he is a hard worker. 
I oh, mean, for sure. Yeah. There's <laughs> even, no doubt. Even like, okay, forget the book, because anybody can write whatever they want in a book. But if you just look at his record, the guy was working his ass off. I don't know what to tell you. I don't... There's no doubt. Yeah. But, but just... Speaking to that, funny, that underdog yeah, thing aside, he never pretended to be one. Right. He's like, oh, oh. you can look at it as arrogance. That's fair. Say, I've always been great. Things have always yeah. been good. It's like, hey, you're you, pretty good. At but people were mad at him that for, impression. for not. <laughs> people were mad at him for like not having a humble origin story. It's like, he was like, I don't care. And yeah, that was so. I, I like that actually. I think it's really refreshing. It's better than lying. I mean, it's better yeah, than saying like these guys who who I grew are, up in a coal mine. It's like no, you didn't. You did. You know. Yeah, you had exactly the kind of upbringing that Donald Trump did. A lot of them did. I mean, Joe. Or Biden, very similar. Joe Biden's a liar. You know? I mean, we know he's a liar, but but he lied. I don't about, know if he can lie anymore though. He's <laughs> not even he, there. He didn't come from humble scran. Like he didn't. His father wasn't like a steel worker or something. You know he. His father was affluent, and, and right. that's fine. I don't yeah, even it's care. Fine. I don't care. Just own it, man. Just yeah. You didn't, you know, you didn't like get beat up in the alley in Scranton, Pennsylvania, in nineteen fifty, by like you know, you know, you just by corn pop or whatever. Right. <laughs> like, right. Oh my gosh. But um, I don't even mean to go down the the road of talking about that, but but it does circle back to that. That 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 desire in the West to always associate with the minority as the underdog. Mm-hmm. That just there's always that call to have like the better life ahead. Right. But that's also in, interesting too because that's the hero's story, hero's journey. It's like the everybody wants to position themselves in it because it's romantic. Right. It's it, it is right. I mean, right. it's more romantic to say like. I'm gonna scratch and claw, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna get somewhere and, and give a better life to my kids. Mm-hmm. And then your kids get that better life, and they're like, "Well, I need to, I need to have a, a hero's journey story too." But like, my parents were good, you know. Right. Uh, well, maybe they're ungrateful. <laughs> and it's tough. It's tough. And and then, I think a big part of the sympathies for a lot of the migrant population mm-hmm. comes from they're on the hero's journey. They're true. they're they're on the journey to, and I'll give I'll I'll definitely say that that's true for a lot of people. They're like, of course, on foot, oh like Edward, you know, know, getting to the it, better life. For I don't blame people for that. Of no, course not. No, not at all. And and, and uh, it, that's where people are looking to to satisfy that, like, because life is so good in, in the United States for so many people, and it is. Yeah, it's like easy. We talk about we talked about it last time, like. People died so we could drink coffee in cafes and yeah. just like drinking this, do this shit right now. Exactly. You know, th- we're doing this stuff mm-hmm. plugged into modern things in a, in a house in Wayne's, in a house in North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> you just gave it away. <laughs> in a yeah, way, yeah. And, and people are literally just walking across continents to try and get here to do to try and be part of this. It's admirable and, and when it's not weaponized. When it's yeah by corporate. Classes, you know, by the bureaucracy, yeah, by the or, thing that Thoreau and Abbey, yeah, fought or yeah. wanted to fight, yeah. you know, or or left a little bit of ammunition for us to fight, yeah, um, hundred percent. So, yeah, I. What was I going to say? I wrote something. I always say to you and Ki, I always say to you and Kai though that my 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 enemy our enemy. <laughs> 
for lack of better words, is the bureaucratic superstructure. It's not, it really isn't um, migrants or the poor or the rich or whatever, one way or the other. It's, it's really, um, <coughs> I use that term loosely, it's really the superstructure that's using people. Right as pawns against each other. And mm -hmm. of course, that's, a, that's an old story. Yep. But it, it's that structure that you know what they're doing. Yep. You can sense it, you can sense it in your conscience that something's wrong. Yeah. They're obviously poisoning the well here. Right. Um, with with uh, animosity. Right. <clears throat> and we have to keep our, you know, our sights on that. I talked to, you talked to like old boomer. Yeah. Like Republicans or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, no, my enemy is like, the, you know, the you know, guy coming over the border. I'm like, no, the, the, it's, it's not. It's funny that he's constant, that Abby is constantly talking about the population. He talks about it in almost all of his essays. Um, but as we know now, and I think even then, actually, I think people... Well, what do you would, mean? Well, he's saying that overpopulation is a problem or a potential oh problem that's a big and i do not, not agree with that at all i think that doesn't it, it was a psyop from the beginning doesn't that go back to <clears throat> it's not overpopulation it's mislocation of the population it's too many people hey, i'm i'm down with that in two, in two this whole country's land but then if you start spreading out if you said, let's, you know, let's get people from all of Chicago to just, like, move. I mean, even the Greeks had their colonies, you know. Yeah. Because it's culture and it builds yeah. up and it manifests. But it's too much. We're overpopulated in density in places. I mean, we could be more dense probably everywhere in I don't this want country. To, uh, oh, everywhere? Not the yes. cities. You need to spread out your resources. I agree. I, I'm a... I'm actually a big fan of that spreading out, and Abby talks about that actually uh, in his polemic, Industrial Tourism in the National Parks. What does he say? He says, My thoughts were on the road and the crowds that would pour upon it as inevitably as water under pressure follows every channel which is open to it. Man is a gregarious creature. We are told a social being. Does that mean he is also a herd animal? I don't believe it, despite the character of modern life. The herd is for ungulates, ungulates? Not for men and women and their children. Are men no better than sheep or cattle? They must, that they must live always in view of one another in order to feel a sense of safety? I can't believe it. We are preoccupied with time. If we could learn to love space as deeply as we are now obsessed with time, we might discover a new meaning in the phrase to live like men. Um, he goes on to mention Jefferson and Hamilton, actually, somewhere down here, but I'll find it later. Anyway, uh, that is actually the, one of the great debates that was going on in the early years of our country between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, which was how should the country be composed right out the gate, right out of the gate? Should we be trying to increase in space to occupy more space or should we be trying to increase in industry so that time can be accumulated and they did both while they did do both manifest destiny meets the industrial northeast exactly yeah they did do both 
and Thomas Jefferson was able to, you know, do the Louisiana Purchase and increase the space because he thought. Wasn't it like seventeen? It was. It was like. How, it was yeah, a couple thank, million thanks dollars. Napoleon, again. <laughs> it was just like know. a couple million for a whole. Fifteen million. Fifteen. Was it fifteen? Yes. It's still so funny. Yeah, I think I, I have a friend who's French and. She was complaining about it the other day. I thought it was the hilarious. cost. Well, she was complaining that Jefferson got such a good deal on Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. After all these years, but um, yeah, that is that is the question even today: is uh, do we love space more or time more? I think people are coming to love space more because they're realizing that giving their time to these people in these places where they're not valued and where they don't actually have a stake in the property, I don't like think, in the cities. I, I really don't think you can love one without the other. You need both. I, I, I don't think you can love your space without realizing your time's valuable. Sure. Uh, because, and you are seeing that now. You saw it play out after COVID. Mm-hmm. People moved to space to get right. away from the city. They realized that the city... While this, keeping their their industrial their post industrial kind of jobs, right, uh, with the laptop, like with myself. the internet, yeah, <laughs> but, which is great, actually. But the funny thing is, the city provides all these illusions. Mm-hmm. New York City, I have good friends who live there, and they moved out of it, of of an environment or an ecosystem all on its own. Mm-hmm. And as soon as something like a pandemic and a bureaucracy got together. To shut your life down. Yeah. Shut down the theater. Yeah. Shut down the, the concerts. Shut down the restaurants, mm-hmm. the hospitality industry, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. And you're a bug mm-hmm. in a jar at that right. point. Uh, <clears throat> you realize that now you have time to think about nature and space again. Right. And time. Mm-hmm. And they can't be separated. True. Because your time in that scenario is being spent in your apartment stuck mm-hmm. in one space right in the city you're saying yes yeah w- w- and once the once that ecosystem of the city is shut down which is so removed from nature right and people like to you know they like to go to central park and pretend or feel like they're in nature and those parks are amazing yeah i have a friend who designs those oh yeah 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 and um they're beautiful. Yeah. That's not to take away from what they do. They're an attempt at getting people to feel greenery right. and scenery. But, yeah, once all that stuff was taken away from people, though, they immediately had time to think about time, space, yeah. Yeah. in a real way. They weren't marching onto the subway to get to their job, looking at their watch, mm-hmm. not really thinking about time. But mm-hmm. And then coming home for like maybe an hour and making some food and going to bed and then doing it all again the next day they were they were those things were wed in that moment <clears throat> right so that was I think that's good yeah I, but I also think in, in, in that people become in the city almost unnatural men mm. well, you're in a zoo you're in a zoo it, <clears throat> Um, in the big cities, not like mm-hmm. not small cities. No, I'm not talking about Knoxville or Asheville. Sure, sure. But they become unnatural men, and then when they move out of them, it, it 
and moved to a small town in America and continue to work their jobs. I, I remember seeing people were, were displacing people in Silverton, Colorado, which is a beautiful mountain town in the San Juan Mountains in western central Colorado. Mm -hmm. But that a lot of laptop people just moved there yeah. during the pandemic because it's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. It's like a thousand people in a valley in, a, in the mountains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, what that does is that that's almost like an invasive species. It is. In a way. Yeah. It's a people. They have the right, again, but, but it, it does things unnaturally to something that was a bit more natural than the city The life. economy, the culture. The, both. Yeah. It, displ it just displaces what is naturally there. Right. If, if somebody from a laptop's making 175 grand a year, mm -hmm. moves into a town where that median income is 50 or 60,000, mm -hmm. and they just, and they do that by the masses, and they bring their, their urban mindset to it. Oh, yeah. It doesn't really work. Right. Well, they're, also their values are very friction. different. They're, the way they're going to vote is going to be different. Well, that's 100% um, true. And that's fine. That is the way of the American world, but uh, but even just need to be think about what that does. Thought to through. This, this, it, it's really just gentrification, but in but gentrification is a good thing typically, in I a agree. lot of ways. I agree. But it's gentrification in such a weird, unnatural way. It has to be natural. It I, has to I be. I remember living in Brooklyn oh, and boy. working in a cafe, and having this. Uh, this black man come in and he was an older man and he was telling, he was, he wanted to talk about gentrification and he said that it was a good thing. Mm. He said, the way this place used to be, like you couldn't be walking out here at night and da, 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 da. He said, this is, this neighborhood is much better since the, it's been gentrified. The ideal is that they gentrify and they bring people up in, with it in right, it. Right, right. A lot of the stuff in Brooklyn, though, you Some of the gentrification that ejects the people who have been living there, you know, for many, many years. That, well, I don't agree with that. It can be just as unnatural as doing it to a small town of in, course, a, in a no, borough like Brooklyn because these kids come from Manhattan, yeah. Upper East Side or whatever. I know. And they just, like, they pump tons of their dad's money in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like... Oh, look what we did to Brooklyn. And it's like, well, you know, are you are you doing anything? Where do those people go? Because they, they deserve This is true. They they, a lot a of shot. people do get pushed out. So there, there could be an unnatural colonization, too. To, yeah. Not to use that buzzword, but, but, that's, but that's really happening in a crisis scale in small-town America, I think. Mm. That kind of thing. Yeah. But it, it can be good. Even here, a lot of people moved here during the pandemic. To Western North Carolina. <laughs> oh, Asheville! Did you know Asheville was the number one market? I think for a while. Really? In the country. For what? Housing. Yeah, people were moving here by the just in droves. You see all the new condo complexes. Yeah, I remember in 2018 there was something like 10,000 people moving to Houston per week. Per week. Yeah. Houston's a mess, though, right? It's. Well, I. I can't speak to Houston. It's so now. big. It's like LA in Texas. Yeah, it's a pretty sprawling city. I hate LA. Okay, I'm just gonna tell him. Yeah, yeah. I fucking hate that city. <laughs> don't tell Brian. I don't like. Yeah, hey, sorry. Bro. I just don't like it. I've been there like once for four days, and I, it is magical. I will say it has the nice. It's got a nice vibe. And there's something to it that is. There's so much suffering that I can't True. turn my eyes from. 
true. This um, is true. That that seems to be more than acceptable. Yeah. It seems to be. Well, more... you get it. You just get it on a large scale. Oh. That stuff is everywhere, but in. In no, LA. not in the, per capita. It's like really is serious. Is it really? It's really serious. Mm. I think LA homeless population is like seventy five thousand. Oh my gosh! That's seventy five thousand people who are in some serious trouble. Yeah, and there's people who advocate for that to exist. Really? Well, really, if you think about what they do, they advocate the existence of like nobody's actually advocating for armed robberies, mm -hmm. but Gascon, the DA. Yeah, he he advocates for these people to not be in jail for more than one night. Sure. So, are you advocating for these things to exist, or? Yeah, I. Well, I think do that, these people deserve when they're in such an insane situation, when certain systems have landed them in that position, you know, and they're desperate. It, it's not a question that you know we could even begin to scratch on a right broadcast now. right yeah, now yeah, yeah. but um yeah well i think it's being created as i'm saying true i just think that there's obviously some hand that's interesting it's special oh, oh for sure it's it's tailoring it to a point and it's like oh yeah there are th there are ways to disincentivize like you know of course armed robbing mom and pop grocery store of course um but, you know. Well, I have uh, one more one more excerpt here that we could read. And I think it has to do with, um, again, going back to the criticism and kind of the spirit of the criticism, I would say. Uh, and where is it, actually? I lost it. It had to do with joy. Oh, let me find it here. Ah, okay, here we go. So this is in his essay called Water, about halfway through the book, Desert Solitaire. And he's talking about how there are these pools that will show up after storms. And at certain times in the year, you have these bullfrogs who show up, or these toads. And... He says, um, has joy any, he's talking about them croaking. He says, has joy any survival value in the operations of evolution? I suspect that it does. I suspect that the morose and fearful are doomed to quick extinction. Where there is no joy, there can be no courage. And without courage, all other virtues are useless. Therefore, the frogs, the toads, keep on singing, even though we know if they don't, that the sound of their uproar must surely be luring all the snakes and ring-tailed cats and kit foxes and coyotes and great horned owls toward the scene of their happiness. Um, what then, a few of the little amphibians will continue their metamorphosis by way of the nerves and tissues of one of the higher animals, in which process the joy of one becomes the contentment of the second. Nothing is lost except an individual consciousness, here and there, a trivial, perhaps even illusory, phenomenon. The rest survive, mate, multiply, burrow, estivate, dream, and rise again. The rains will come, the potholes shall be filled again and again. 
and again, end quote. But I like what he's saying about joy, how joy is dangerous. Hmm. Or potentially dangerous. You know, even criticism is potentially dangerous, and it should be done with a certain modicum of joy. You should be having fun. There should be humor. Which I think he did. That's very, I forgot how poetic that book is. Yeah. It's incredible. It's beautiful. I think it's why it was, it's his, his peak achievement. Is it? It's seen as such. It's is not this, my. This is his main one? My opinion, it's not. Mm. I think it's an amazing book, but I, I was touched much more by The Fool's Progress. But mm. I see why this is seen that way. Oh, that's his novel. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. A copy of it up there. Um, one of his novels, and he had many. Right, right. And they're all, everyone I've read is good, but I feel like the Desert, um, Desert Solitaire really just, it's like, wow, he really was in, he really found that balance between Wolf's language mm -hmm. and a modern, less flowery, romantic. He, yeah, he's kind of like a less Eastern Kerouac. Mm. You know? Kerouac is going out into the wilderness, going on these long hikes in California on the coast. Oh, we, oh, you know? we didn't even talk about Big Sur. We're like out of time. Yeah. No, we'll talk about that another time. Big, but Big Sur would have been what I would have... But it, that's, that's, it's that vibe, you know, that, natu that romantic naturalism vibe. We also didn't talk about Emerson. Well, you know, we talked about Emerson a little bit. A little but bit. But not like... Yeah, yeah. The, he deserves his own... Maybe like two parter. Yeah, that's gonna be the someone will make a super cut. But you know what I was, I was gonna say though to, about how to everyone the, deserves their own. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, this is the quote though I wanted okay, to read, read to you it, earlier. Read it, read it. That I thought you'd appreciate. Okay. But before I read that, I just want to say about Kerouac. The funny thing about Kerouac with Big Sur, yeah. which is my favorite book by Kerouac so, uh, so far as I read. Mm. He went to Big Sur, and have you been to Big Sur? No. It's the most beautiful place in the country. Really? In my opinion. It's, it's, it's just the most beautiful drive out of, out of Santa Cruz, California. I started that book, and I, I bought recently Henry Miller's Big Sur. Oh, I don't so know I, 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 I want to read both. Big Sur, Kerouac's is good, but guess what? What? He couldn't enjoy himself. Really? And that gets to the Emerson thing. He, the Emerson idea that if you're at odds with nature in some way. You're always gonna be looking to try and enjoy it. What's ahead of you instead of what's really in your sphere. Interesting. And no, Does he, he make that observation himself or that's I, you observing? It's just things bothering him. He's drunk. Kerouac yeah, is yeah, drunk. Yeah. He has a hard time getting to it because he's, he was, I think because he was really an, an urbanite at that point. Sure. He's a hard time like embracing what's actually going on. He's he's a, a city guy. He was. Yeah. Yeah. But he really wanted to. He, he wanted couldn't. to not be a city guy. And Big Sur is oh it's it's an unbelievable place. Uh, but this is the line from Emerson that you would you would, Okay. All right. Let's see here. And the knowledge that we traverse the whole scale of being from the center to the poles of nature and have some stake in every possibility, lends that sublime luster to death, which philosophy and religion have too outwardly and literally striven to express in the popular doctrine of the immortality of the soul. <laughs> the reality is more excellent than the report, 
he goes on to say here, this is the end of nature, that the reality of life in our role with nature is yeah. better than the immortality of the soul, which is what you, all, one of the first things I learned about you is you believe that. You believe that. 100%. The, yeah, and that actually, that striving for the immortality of the soul. Yeah, I don't believe that exists. Actually destroys your ability to embrace the, the nature around you. 100%. Paul Tillich talks about that. A lot of people talk. A lot of the serious, non-dogmatic, honest thinkers uh, in the Christian tradition are coming out of it, at least, come to that conclusion that when you're const when your ideal and your home in your mind is somewhere else and this is not your home then you devalue your time and your practice so, in this so place interesting cuz christian doctrine says this is our home it was not, it's been not really well this is where christ's it, kingdom's going to be that's true and I agree with that. When you die, you're dead. When you die, you're dead. And, okay, depending on your reading of the Bible, paradise is going to be here. I think that. Um, you know, if you're, if you're operating within the Christian tradition and mm. you're being non-dogmatic in your reading, then you will say, okay, well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that paradise is going to be on the earth. It's not somewhere else. Mm. But the, some of the traditions um, will say that between death and paradise, you go off to heaven or you go to purgatory or you go somewhere else, which is assuming that you have this soul that isn't part, necessarily part of your body that will remain conscious and that keeps on going on if you die or when you die. Uh, but yeah, Emerson is 100% correct. I fully agree. I'd like to ask Christopher Hitchens what he thinks. I have one more. You inspired me to, to right. read one we'll more. We'll end on this? One, yeah, we'll okay. end on this. So, Abby says in his essay, Cowboys and Indians, Part 2, unequipped to... He's talking about uh, certain of the Native Americans. Unequipped to hold their own in the ferociously competitive world of white America, in which even the language is foreign to them, the Navajos sink ever deeper into the culture of poverty, exhibiting all the usual and well-known symptoms, squalor, unemployment or irregular and ill-paid employment, broken families, disease, prostitution, crime, alcoholism, lack of education, too many children, apathy and demoralization, and various forms of mental illness, including evangelical Protestantism. <laughs> so good. Oh God, you just said that word, it's the most beautiful word. Navajo. In my opinion, the most beautiful tribe, too. Really? Architecturally, everything, everything about the Navajo culture. It's incredible. The pottery. I mean, that's... Right. Just, and just to hear him talk about what it's been reduced to is... It's very sad. It's, it's the ultimate removal from nature. Mm -hmm. They've separated them from, from everything they were. Yeah, and then they've been put in this kind of poisonous womb inside of... America, you know, because they're a reservation now. Right. So it's just... But even just, uh, man, as a tribe, they were like the most peaceful of the Native Americans, I believe. Really? They, they were often the victims of the Apache, mm. I think. 
who are the opposite. Right, right. <laughs> They're past you are scary. <laughs> right. But um, even just that word, though. Oh, what a beautiful word. Navajo. Am I getting weird here? No, it's a beautiful sounding word. It, just Name. the color of their, their uh, domains. That like reddish brown. Yeah, yeah. Adobe and the their their fi- the way yeah, that they it, live their lives it's so amazing. It, it would be interesting to check out the etymology or even like the gematria of Navajo, you know, or some kind of creative, some kind of creative linguistic interpretation of the name. Um, sure, it has a pretty straight. Yeah. Interpretation. Oh, for sure. But you know, there are ways that you can make it even more. Uh, Illustrious, the the arcane esoteric interpretation of the name. <laughs> now, anyway, we've probably gone pretty pretty. Yeah, far I think over. we think we've done it. Um, More than done it. Yeah, I think we've really overshot it. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. 